Well, it's good to be with you this morning. I greet each you, each of you, in the name of Jesus. The message this morning is going to come from Hebrews chapter twelve. But before I look at that, the message I'm going to share is the second message of a two-part series, and so I want to introduce you just briefly to the first message so you know where I'm going with this and the first message came out of 1 Corinthians 9 and at the end of 1 Corinthians 9 Paul uses the illustration of an athlete uh, specifically a runner and he says this he says and if you're if you're there it's verse 24 he says know ye not that they which run in a race run all but one receiveth the prize. And so Paul is speaking of a physical race, and what he's saying is that in an athletic event or a race, there's many people that compete, there's many people that participate, but there's one that wins, either one person or one team that wins the prize. And he goes on to say that it's a, it's a corruptible crown that they're trying to achieve. But then he says this, he says, So run that ye may obtain. And so now he, he switches and he's talking about our spiritual race, our spiritual journey that we're in. And, and what he is saying is that in an in a athletic event, because there's one winner, the participants in that event are going to put everything they have into winning, into completing that race, into gaining that crown. And so he's saying for us as Christians... Run your Christian race with the fervor and zeal that an athlete would trying to run a physical race. Run like that. Because we're running to gain an incorruptible crown. And so put that energy, that effort, into your spiritual journey like an athlete would who is trying to gain a corruptible crown. And so in that chapter then, there was three things that we looked at, and I'll just point them out quickly. Uh, Verse 25, Paul says, And every man that striveth for the mastery, or or tries to compete to win, is temperate in all things. And so the first point was run with temperance, or run with self-restraint. And then he says, I therefore so run, not as uncertainly, so fight I, not as one that beateth the air. Thinking of running with purpose, or running with intention. Having, having a goal, having a purpose for your race. And then he says, But I keep under my body and bring it into subjection, lest that by any means, when I have preached to others, I myself should be a castaway. The idea of running with discipline. And so all those things are, are things we see in the life of athletes who want to win a corruptible crown. And Paul is saying, do that in your spiritual life. Exemplify those traits in your spiritual life so that you can gain the incorruptible crown. And so that, that was part one of this message. The title of the message this morning is Run to Win. Run to Win. And I'm going to be looking at the first two verses of Hebrews 12. This is somewhat of a parallel passage. Not, not really, but it, it goes right along with 1 Corinthians 9 where Paul, again, is referring to a race. 
And, and here's what he says, first, uh, Hebrews 12, verses 1 and 2. Wherefore, seeing, all, seeing we also are compassed about with so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which doth so easily beset us, and let us run with patience the race that is set before us, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is set down at the right hand of the throne of God. Now Paul starts out in verse 1 with wherefore, and he's pointing back to Hebrews chapter 11, which is a very familiar passage. Someone tell me, what do we know Hebrews 11 as? Heroes of faith. It's a, it's a passage, a chapter that speaks of incredible men and women who were faithful to God, did amazing things. When we read about men like Enoch, who we don't, we don't have a lot of information about Enoch's life, but he pleased God. He walked with God. That's, that's about the extent of the information we have about Enoch. But it was to the extent that God just took him home. God didn't even make him go through the experience of death. God just took him home. Obviously an incredible man in his day. We read about Noah, a man who was faithful to God in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation. To the extent that when God came down to see if there was faith on the earth, that's who God found, Noah and his family. That, that was it. Faithful to God in his generation. We read about Abraham, a man who was willing to leave the comforts of his home, leave his culture, and follow the leading of God, go to an unknown place because he believed God. He had faith in God. Just, and then, on top of that, to take his only son, his promised son, lay him on the altar out of obedience to God and give his son to God in that way. Then you have Moses, a man who was willing to suffer affliction with the people of God rather than enjoy the pleasures of sin for a season. Again, an incredible man. All these people, and there's many more, and there's, there's women that are mentioned in here. Men and women who are faithful to God in spite of the evils around them, in spite of the trials they face, in, in spite of the, the torments and the persecutions they face, they were faithful to God. And so we have them recorded. But the one, there's, there's three words in, in chapter 11 that I want to point out, and that is in verse 13. The first three words of that, of that verse says this, these all died. These all died. All these incredible men and women, they all died. Now the exception to that is Enoch. Uh, but other than that, they all died. So Hebrews 11 is about their race. It's about their journey. It's about their faith. And it's, uh, it's an incredible passage to go to, to learn from, to be inspired by to be encouraged by, but at the end of the day, they all died. And now it's up to us. So Hebrews 12 says, Wherefore, seeing we are surrounded by this great cloud of witnesses, we have them to look up to, we have them to, to follow, but the writer says, let us run. Let us run our race, the race that is set before us. Looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, 
So now it's about us. At the end of the day, we can learn from the, the examples of these heroes. We, we can follow their, their example, they left for us. But at the end of the day, it's about us. We have to run our race. And so how is your story going to read? After you have died, what are people going to remember you for? Is it your earthly accomplishments? Or is it your unwavering faith in God? So there's three things in these two verses that I want us to consider if we want to run to win. If we want to win the race that is set before us. The first one is in verse 1. It says this, Let us lay aside every weight and the sin which doth so easily beset us. So the first point is run unhindered. Run unhindered. And in each of these points, I'm going to be looking at examples of an athlete who is training to win a corruptible crown. And I'm also going to be looking some at these heroes in chapter 11. So the first point, run unhindered. Now, oftentimes when an athlete is preparing for an event, they will put extra weight on their bodies to train. They may strap them on their wrists, they may put them around their ankles, and then they go run. And it, it helps build muscle, it helps condition their bodies, helps them get ready for that event that they want to compete in. And, and it, it serves a purpose. But once they're ready to race, once they stand at that starting line and they get ready to race, all the weights come off. They don't want anything holding them back. There's no baggy clothing. There's no jewelry. There's, no, there, there's nothing that's going to slow them down. They want to be as aerodynamic as possible. They want to be as light as possible. I, I've even heard that bikers, maybe uh, James could tell us this, but bikers take stickers off their bikes. Because it adds weight, I guess. It seems kind of foolish, but they don't want anything slowing them down. Now, how does that apply to us in our spiritual race? Just like the athlete will lay aside everything that hinders him from winning, so we need to lay aside anything that's keeping us from being who God wants us to be. Now Paul divides these, these things that hinder us into two categories. He talks about the weights, and he talks about the sin. And so I'm going to divide those up this morning in that way. I want to look first of all look at the weights. I think the fact that Paul does make a distinction between the weights and the sin implies that the things he is talking about when he talks about the weights are not necessarily sinful things. They're not necessarily things that Scripture says, thou shalt not. But yet it's things that are holding you back. It's things that are hindering you. We could make a big list. It could be an electronic device. It could be a social media platform. Uh, and, I, and I put those at the top of the list for a reason, because I think in our day, they are tremendous weights. Not sinful. They're good. They have potential for good, but yet they've become tremendous weights that drag people down. So let's recognize it. Let's, let's consider it. Let's ponder it. Could be that. It could be a, a job. It could be a hobby. It could be a friend. It could be a vehicle. It could even be an opinion or an attitude. Or we could add to the list. 
a whole list of things that in and of themselves there's nothing wrong with. Even things that have potential. And yet, what has happened is that in your life, they're holding you back. They're keeping you from being who God wants you to be. They're hindering you in your race. And Paul says, lay it down. Get it out of your life. In Matthew 18, actually several places in the Gospels, Jesus talked about this very thing in his own way. Just two verses here from Matthew 18. This is Jesus teaching. He says this, Wherefore, if thy hand or thy foot offend thee, cut them off and cast them from thee. For it is better for thee to enter into life, hot or maimed, rather than having two hands or two feet to be cast into everlasting fire. And if thine eye offend thee, pluck it out and cast it from thee. For it is better for thee to enter into life with one eye rather than having two eyes to be cast into hell fire. Now this is radical teaching of Jesus. It's, it's teaching that some people try to kind of uh, gloss over and say, well, he was being, he, he was kind of going overboard just to make his point. But I don't think he was. He was basically saying that whatever it is in your life that's keeping you from being who God wants you to be, take, make, take the necessary steps to, to get yourself where God wants you to be, whatever that means. And he goes to the extent of saying, it's better for you to enter eternity being faithful to God with one arm or one eye rather than entering eternity as a sinner with two arms. Now, could I be more effective in God's kingdom with two arms? Absolutely. But in this case, Jesus says, you're not being. You should be, but you're not being, so take care of it. It's just simply that, that simple point of whatever it is that's dragging you down, no matter how useful it is, get it out of your life. It's slowing you down. There's an example of this in the Old Testament that I think is, is very fitting, and I just want to briefly touch on it. It's the example of Hezekiah. When Hezekiah began his reign, he set out to start a reformation in Judah and bring the people... God's people back to himself, back to God. And just one verse in 2 Kings 18 that speaks of some of the steps Hezekiah took to make that happen. And it says this, this is 2 Kings 18 verse 4. It says, he, Hezekiah, removed the high places. And I would just insert this here. The high places, if you read through the list of kings, the high places were something that for some reason these kings, even the good kings, had trouble getting rid of. Different places, you'll read about a good king, they did this, they did this, and they were a good king, and God was pleased with them. But, but then it'll add this little disclaimer, but the high places they did not remove. All I think every one of the good kings throughout this time period, it adds that phrase when it talks about them. They did all these good things, but the high places were not removed. But we come to Hezekiah, and it says, He removed the high places, and he break the images, and cut down the groves, and break in pieces the brazen serpent that Moses had made. For unto those days the children of Israel did burn incense to it, and he called it Nehoshtan. So he got rid of all these things, most of them sinful things, but the thing that I want to point out in this context, is 
the brazen serpent that Moses had made. It says he broke it down and got rid of it. Now, I think we all remember the story of the brazen serpent. Israel was, was fussing against Moses. They were complaining and God sent serpents among them. And these serpents came and they were biting people and many people were dying. And, and they cried out to God and God told Moses to build this serpent out of brass, put it up on a pole, and if the people look to it, they'll be healed. Now, was there anything wrong with the serpent? Absolutely not. This was commanded by God. It was a beautiful picture of Christ, really. Us in and of ourselves, we're, we're dying. We're, we, we, we can't be, we, we, we don't have any way to redeem ourselves, and yet we have Jesus coming, giving his life on the cross. And as we look to him, as we come to him, we can be saved. It's a beautiful picture of Christ. But here we are. My understanding is Hezekiah was some 700 years later. And now these people were still dragging this serpent around with them. And now they were burning incense to it. They were worshiping it. And so Hezekiah sees this thing, sees what's happened with it, and he, he gets rid of it. He breaks it down, and it says he calls it Nahashtin, which there's different interpretations of what that means, but I think it basically means it's a, a worthless thing of brass or, or a trifling thing of brass. It, it has no value. At one point it did. At one point it was good, but now it doesn't. So he said Nahashtin, and he got rid of it. So what I want to challenge you with is this. Evaluate your life. This is not about thou shalt nots. This is about your life, your personal life, things in your life that are keeping you from being what God wants you to be. Maybe when you started out, it was a good thing and you had good intentions, but now it's dragging you down. If that's the case, get it out of your life. Do you want to win the race? Do you want to be successful in your spiritual journey? Lay it aside. Get it out of your life. So that's the weights. Now I want to think about this besetting sin that Paul refers to. Now it's interesting. Paul doesn't say every sin. He says the sin. And it was pointed out to me once that there is a particular sin that Paul is referring to here. And that is the sin of unbelief. Is, is the sin that Paul is referring to. And it points back to Hebrews 11. In Hebrews 11, these heroes were all remembered for their faith. They believed God in spite of the fact that they never saw the ultimate fulfillment of the promises of God. They saw some promises fulfilled, but they didn't see the coming of Christ, which was the ultimate promise of God that they were truly looking for, but yet they believed God. And it, it was out of that belief that they, that they lived a life of, of holiness to God, of dedication to God. So verse 13 of Hebrews 11, I already read the first three words. I want to read the rest of it. It says this, these all died in faith, all these heroes, they died in faith, not having received the promises but having seen them afar off and were persuaded of them and embraced them and confessed 
that they were strangers and pilgrims on the earth. They believed God in spite of the fact that a lot of the promises they never saw fulfilled. And yet they understood God enough to know that it was true. And it was out of that that they lived in obedience to him. And so what I want you to understand is that these heroes did not require God to prove himself. They took him at his word and they lived a life of obedience to him. Now, think about this. If Noah hadn't believed God, would he have spent some 50 to 60 years building a boat? Would he have done that if he didn't believe God? Probably not. If Abraham wouldn't have believed God, would he have left his country, left the comforts of home, and went and dwelt in tents in an unknown land if he hadn't believed God? Probably not. Would he have laid his only son on the altar if he hadn't believed God 100%? Probably not. Our faith in God is not just simply believing that he exists. But it's believing that every word he said is true and every promise he made will be kept. And it's out of that belief that we live a life of complete surrender and obedience to his word. Do you truly believe God enough to completely surrender your life to him? If you don't, you're not going to do these. You're not going to take up your cross if you don't really believe God. You're not going to obey some of the hard teachings in Scripture if you don't believe God. There's a warning in Hebrews 3 that says this, Take heed, brethren, lest there be in any of you an evil heart of unbelief in departing from the living God. And then the writer goes on to say this, But exhort one another daily, while it is called today, lest any of you be hardened through the deceitfulness of sin. If we are going to win the race, we must run unhindered. We must lay aside the weights and we must lay aside the besetting sin, the sin of unbelief. All right, so the second point then is is found in verse 1 as well, where Paul says, let us run with patience the race that is set before us. So the second point is run with patience. There are many different kinds of races that people compete in. Two I'll mention here. One would be a sprint. And in a sprint, a sprint is typically a a short distance or a shorter distance. And the runners in a sprint, from the time that gun sounds to the time they cross the finish line, they are running as hard as they can run. They are running as fast as they can run. They're putting every ounce of energy they have into that race from the time it starts to the time it ends. The other type of race is a marathon. And I think you all know what a marathon is. A marathon is typically, I think, 26.2 miles, I believe. And in a marathon, the runners know that if they're going to complete this race, they have to pace themselves. They can't take off. You know, when they start at the beginning, they're full of energy, they're, they're, they're excited, and they can't take off running as fast as they can run because they know that if they do, invariably, They'll, they'll get tired, they'll, they'll, uh, they'll, they'll lose in the long run. They won't be able to complete the race. But, and so they pace themselves. They, they run 
that they you know they jog some, they sprint some, they walk some because they want to win, and so they, they they pace themselves. Now, how does this apply in our spiritual race? Our Christianity is not a sprint; it is a marathon. It is a journey. And I think often as young Christians, we want to go at it with everything we have. We want to put every ounce of energy into running our race. We have big ambitions. We have dreams. We have ideals. And and we want to go for it. But it's not long. And we realize that, that some of these ideals aren't being met. There's people that are letting us down. There's... There's dreams that seem unattainable and we begin to get discouraged. We begin to get tired. And so I'm not saying here that don't be zealous. I'm not saying don't give it all you have. I'm not saying don't have ideals, but I'm saying run with patience. Remember that our Christian life is a journey and we must be faithful to God one day at a time. And don't be discouraged when things don't go quite as planned. And I'm speaking that to myself as much as I am to anyone. Again, we could look at the heroes in chapter 11. Think about Moses again, building an ark. He didn't have a big crew, I don't think. And like I said, it took him years and years to build this ark. And so he would go out one morning and he would put up a few boards And then the next day he'd go out and put up a few more boards. And it really didn't seem like he was accomplishing much. Imagine 50, 60 years of your life dedicated to this. After a while, you'd feel like you're not getting much done. And yet he was faithful to God one day at a time. And because of it, he saved his family. And he was faithful to God and God rewarded him. And we could look at many other heroes as well. Um... Moses, God had a special work for him. And yet for 40 years, he was in the wilderness watching sheep. What was the point? God was preparing him one day at a time, and he was faithful to God where he was at. All these heroes we read about in in Hebrews 11, all of them made mistakes. All of them fell. All of them probably faced discouragements. And yet they were faithful to God. They got up when they fell. They went on. They took one day at a time. And so the point that I want you to get is be faithful to God today. And then tomorrow be faithful to God again. And then the next day be faithful to God again. Don't think that you're going to attain all your goals today. Don't think that your ideals are going to be met today. Just be faithful to God where you're at. Even if the situation isn't ideal, be faithful to God. Follow God's leading one step at a time. Run with patience the race that is set before you. Get up each time you fall and be faithful to God again. I had to think of our children. Those of you with with young children, how often do your children come down in the morning for breakfast and you say, wow, Johnny, you really grew last night. No, we don't, we don't say that because we see them every day. And so we don't really think about it. And yet how often do we go <clears throat> away for a family gather, a family reunion, people we see maybe once a year, and what do they all say? Wow, Johnny's getting so big. Because the growth is gradual. 
It's, it's a little bit here. It's a little bit here. It's a little bit here. And we don't see it. But when we step back and, and, we, and we look back, we realize that, yes, God has led me. I am growing. God has been faithful. God has answered prayers. Uh, there has been change. So be faithful. Be patient. Run with patience the race that is set before you. The third point then is in verse 2. Looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. And so the third point is run with focus. Run with focus. In a race, as the athlete is running, he's not thinking about the starting line. He's not thinking about the energy he had and the excitement he felt at, at the starting line. He's thinking about the crown at the end. He's thinking about the finish line. And that's what keeps him going. He's not looking back. He's looking ahead. And how does this apply to our spiritual life? Paul admonishes us in our spiritual race. Fix your eyes on Jesus. Look unto Jesus. The one that began your faith. Okay, and he elaborates this. At the end of verse 2, he says of Jesus, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross. That's, that's what our faith is founded on. He's the author of our faith. And he's the finisher of our faith. The end of verse 2, and is set down at the right hand of the throne of God. He's interceding for us today. He's going to welcome us home. He's our intercessor. The author and finisher of our faith. The beginning and the end, the first and the last. Look unto him. Fix your eyes on Jesus. That's why we run. And it's so easy in the cares and the stresses of life to lose your focus. We have families to raise. We have businesses to run. We have 101 things that are calling for our attention. And it's so easy to lose our focus. But fix your eyes on Jesus. We run not because we have a culture to maintain. We run not because we have a rule book to follow, but we run because we have been redeemed by the blood of Christ. Now I want to think about this on a practical level. <clears throat> Some of this stuff was already mentioned here this morning, but we are living in tumultuous times. And I just want to mention a few things that we're facing. This, this is no surprise to you. But first of all, I'm going to think about the political realm. We are living in a country that I believe is probably as divided now as it has been at least since the Civil War. Very divided. We have organizations that are trying to defund the police. We have opponents of the LGBTQ movement who are aggressively opposed to the truth of Scripture. And I, I hope I can say this without sounding political, but now we have, here real soon, we have people in power uh, who hold to a very liberal viewpoint with really no checks in place. And it was some of these things that prompted me about a week and a half ago, to tell Sue, I don't know what's going on, but things are getting bad. And it was later that day 
that we had the big protest in Washington. They stormed the Capitol building. And I just had to think, wow, what's going on? What, where, where is this headed? Where, what's, this, what's this leading to? So again, I'm not saying any of that to be political. I'm just telling you some facts here. Then we have a pandemic going on. I don't know if y'all realize that or not, but we do. It started close to a year ago. And I think at the onset of this pandemic, we thought, you know, some, some radical measures, we can knock this thing out in a few months. Well, here we are close to a year later, and according to the media, it's, it's worse now than it's ever been. And I don't think it's any secret that it's proven to be very divisive to the church. It seems that it, we're at a time where the people of God should rise up. And instead, the people of God are crumbling at the feet of politics and personal opinion. And quite honestly, it grieves my heart. And I can only imagine how it must grieve the heart of God. Now, I don't say any of this stuff to scare you. The reality is, none of this stuff really concerns me, ex except for the divisiveness in the church. That does. But other than that, none of this stuff really worries me. It was mentioned in Sunday school. Um, I'm glad I'm not a part of that kingdom. I'm glad I'm a part of the kingdom of God that never fails. But I say all this stuff to say that now more than ever, we must fix our eyes on Jesus. That's why I'm saying this. We must fix our eyes on Jesus. I think it's so easy to get caught up in the rhetoric and get caught up in the fear and get caught up in the politics that we lose sight of what we're really after, what we're really running for, what it's all about. Now more than ever, fix your eyes on Jesus. Turn with me in your Bibles to Luke 21. Luke 21, there's a, a passage here that someone pointed something out to me uh, probably just several weeks ago, and it really blessed me. I want to share it with you. This is a passage where the disciples were asking Jesus what signs would accompany the last days. And Jesus launches into a fairly extensive speech concerning the last days. And I'm not going to read all of it. I want to read a few verses. I want to begin with verse 8 of Luke 21. And he, that is Jesus, said, Take heed that ye be not deceived, for many shall come in my name, saying, I am Christ, and the time draweth near. Go ye not therefore after them. But when ye shall hear of wars and commotions, be not terrified, for these things must first come to pass, but the end is not by and by. And he said unto them, Nation shall rise against nation, and kingdom against kingdom. And great earthquakes shall be in diverse places, and famines, and pestilence, and fearful sights, and great signs shall there be from heaven. Now I want to jump to verse 25. And I hope you were following along there and maybe recognized some things that Jesus said. What happened? It, it kind of sounds familiar. But now verse 25, And there shall be signs in the sun, and in the moon, and in the stars, and upon the earth distress of nations with perplexity, the sea and the waves roaring, men's hearts failing them for fear, and for looking after those things which are coming on the earth. For the powers of heaven shall be shaken." 
Now, all those things I just read are disturbing. There's something that if you really have no hope, it's something to fear. It really is. But then we get to verse 27. So I want you to listen here. Pay attention. And then, after all these things, and then shall they see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with power and great glory. And when these things begin to come to pass, what does Jesus say to do? Then look up. Then look up and lift up your heads for your redemption draweth nigh. What does Jesus say to do? Look up. Look up. up. Fix your eyes on Jesus. He doesn't say give in to fear. He doesn't say rant about the politicians. He doesn't say divide the church over your opinions. He says look up. Fix your eyes on Jesus. Brothers and sisters, it's not about us. It's not about our opinions. It's not even about our safety. It's about our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. He's the one who gave his life to redeem us. The author of our faith. He's the one who is interceding on our behalf. The finisher of our faith. Fix your eyes on him. I don't know when the Lord may return. It may be today. It may be a thousand years from now. But I do know this, that our redemption is nearer now than it has ever been. Fix your eyes on Jesus. So, in closing, we are in a race, and we are running not to gain a corruptible crown. We are running to gain an incorruptible crown. Lay aside the weights. Lay aside the sin that drags you down. Run with patience the race that is set before you and fix your eyes on Jesus. Run to win. Now, I want to close with a poem. I heard this a couple years ago, and it blessed me. It's about a race. And in our race, and I mentioned this earlier, but in our race, sometimes it doesn't always go as planned. Sometimes we fall down. Sometimes we stumble. But this is just some some admonition to get up and keep going. Be faithful to the end. It's called get up and win the race. Whenever I start to hang my head in front of failure's face, my downward fall is broken by the memory of a race. A children's race. Young boys, young men, how I remember well. Excitement, sure, but also fear, it wasn't hard to tell. They all lined up, so full of hope, each thought to win that race, or tie for first, or if not that, at least take second place. Their parents watched the, watched from off the side, each cheering for their son, and each boy hoped to show his folks that he would be the one. The whistle blew, and off they flew, like chariots of fire, to win, to be the hero there, was each young boy's desire. One boy in particular, whose dad was in the crowd, was running in the lead and thought, my dad will be so proud. But as he speeded down the field and crossed a shallow dip, the little boy who thought he'd win lost his step and slipped. Trying hard to catch himself, his arms flew every place, and midst the laughter of the crowd, he fell 
flat on his face. As he fell, his hope fell too. He couldn't win it now. Humiliated, he just wished to disappear somehow. But as he fell, his dad stood up and showed his anxious face, face, which to the boy so clearly said, Get up and win that race. He quickly rose, no damage done, behind a bit, that's all, and ran with all his mind and might to make up for his fall. So anxious to restore himself, to catch up, and to win, his mind went faster than his legs. He slipped and fell again. He wished that he had quit before, with only one disgrace. With only one disgrace, I'm hopeless as a runner now. I shouldn't try to race. But through the laughing crowd he searched and found his father's face with a steady look that said again, get up and win that race. So he jumped up to try again, 10 yards behind the last. If I'm to gain those yards, he thought, I've got to run real fast. Exceeding everything he had, he regained eight, then 10, but trying hard to catch the lead. He slipped and fell again. Defeat, he lay there silently. A tear dropped from his eye. There's no sense running anymore. Three strikes, I'm out. Why try? I've lost, so what's the use, he thought. I'll live with my disgrace. But then he thought about his dad, who soon he'd have to face. Get up, an echo sounded low. You haven't lost at all. For all you have to do to win is rise each time you fall. Get up, the echo urged him on. Get up and take your place. You were not meant for failure here. Get up and win that race. So up he rose to run once more, refusing to forfeit, and he resolved that win or lose, at least he wouldn't quit. So far behind the others now, the most he'd ever been, still he gave it all he had and ran like he could win. Three times he'd fallen, stumbling. Three times he rose again. Too far behind to hope to win, he still ran to the end. They cheered another boy who crossed the line and won first place. Head high and proud and happy. No falling, no disgrace. But when the fallen youngster crossed the line in last place, the crowd gave him a greater cheer for finishing the race. And even though he came in last, with head bowed low, unproud, you would have thought he'd won the race to listen to the crowd. And to his dad, he sadly said, I didn't do so well. To me, you won, his father said. You rose each time you fell. And now when things seem dark and bleak and difficult to face, the memory of that little boy helps me in my own race. For all of life is like that race, with ups and downs and all. And all you have to do to win is rise each time you fall. And when depression and despair shout loudly in my face, another voice within me says, Get up and win that race. May the Lord bless you as you strive to be faithful to Him and run your race to the end.